Hi, everyone. Today is February 13th, 2014. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's neurobiology podcast. Our guest today is Nay Scolding, uh, who is Associate Professor of Neuroscience at UT Austin. His research focuses on identifying biophysical mechanisms of dendritic integration and its functional role in sensory processing and synaptic plasticity. Hi, Nace. Hi. And we've got today Charlie Wilson. Hello. And we've got Jim Bauer. Hello. Maybe for the last time. Huh? Maybe. Maybe. Uh, we've got Todd Troyer. Good afternoon. And we've got Carlos Palladini. Hello. Hi, Carlos. And me. I'm your host, Salma Karashi, as usual. So, um, Nace, one of the problems you explore is, is how high-fidelity microsecond-scale temporal information is retained in the face of dendritic distortion of signals owing to things like um, cable filtering. And one of the places in the CNS that this is particularly important um, is, is the me- medial superior olive where temporal differences in binaural input are used to calculate sound localization. So the precision required for proper functioning of these neurons has led you to explore lots of cool questions as to how their morphological and biophysical properties develop and are regulated. So I would love to have a two sort of a two level conversation. First, could you tell our listeners a little bit about the problem and the prep, how it is that high fidelity temporal information is kept from degrading in these highly branched principal cells of the medial superior olive? And then can we get into some bigger questions maybe that emerge from what you've learned about how these properties might develop in the CNS in response to synaptic input? So first and foremost, um, the prep, the problem, the prep. Yeah. So, um, I think the problem that we study in, the aud- in these auditory neurons is actually a very general problem that probably every, is a problem that has to be approached in every neuron in the nervous system, which is the problem of coincidence detection. It's something that ev- just about every neuron does. Any neuron that where a synaptic input doesn't ensure an action potential output has to perform this process of coincidence detection, and which is it has to detect the timing between different populations of inputs and signal their signal at the times when they're in most uh, in most in temporal coherence versus when they're not, and you know the question that di- the parameter that differs between different types of neurons is what's the time frame that we're talking about of the, of the coincidence detection. You hear this term bandied around a lot whether it's in the hippocampus, neocortex, or, or any other region, coincidence detection. And one of the things that attracted me to the auditory system is that the timing constraint for performing coincidence detection is extraordinarily low, and it's, and it's done for a particular reason, which is to convey, in particular areas, convey information about location of sounds. So, um, so let's let's talk about the actual um, the medial superior olive. Can you can you describe some of the yeah, properties of the principal cells? And the- <coughs> so the the auditory system is actually really interesting if you think about it versus other sensory systems. For example, in vision, a lot of the primary computations are performed in visual cortex, and of course there's the th- visual thalamus, but there's really no stops between the retina. Um, other than the thalamus, there's no stops between cortex and the retina. And the auditory system is really vastly different than vision in that a lot of the primary computations happen way before the cortex. Um, and a series of different 
nuclei in the brainstem. Um, computations, like sound location, intensity, um, coding. A lot of the really important auditory computations have already occurred before that information even reaches the cortex. And so, in some ways, I like to think that a lot of the, um, by studying lower levels of the auditory system, we are getting at these fundamental computations. So the area that, that we study is called the medial superior olive, and it's the site where information from the two ears is first combined, which makes it really kind of an intriguing area. Um, it's a pretty simple circuit. There's really only one um, neuron in the brain that actually is, resides in between the medial superior olive and the cochlea, the periphery. So it's a fairly direct line of communication between auditory transduction and the arrival of these excitatory signals at the level of the medial superior olive. And what these, you know, in a nutshell, what these neurons do is they detect tiny differences and tiny disparities in the time of arrival of these excitatory signals from the two ears. And if they're aligned, they signal robustly. And if they're not, they actually actively suppress those signals. Um, and the time, and the important thing is that different neurons in different parts of the medial superior olive are sensitive to different time disparities. And these disparities arise when sounds move in space along different parts of horizontal space specifically. So as you can imagine, the sounds emerging from my left side is going to hit, that sound is going to hit the left ear slightly before the right ear. And, um, and at every other location, that value of the disparity is going to change systematically. So if you have a population of neurons all detecting different time disparities between the activation of the left and right ears, you can have a code for horizontal space in the, uh, in the auditory world. One, one of the really cool things, and it actually were, for me was very nostalgic because um, I sort of grew up as a graduate student in an auditory lab in Wisconsin. And I used to remember listening to the responses of the uh, neurons that are being recorded, in this case in CAT, by Jersey Rose. Yes. And, and most uh, famous auditory neuroscientists. Yeah, very famous. And uh, one of the things that was really striking is you listen to that signal and you could hear the tone in the spikes. You today present really nice. In fact, someone should link to it, to, to a sort of auditory clip because it's kind of cool. You can actually hear in the spiking of the neurons the, the signal that you're giving to the, to the animal. And so... <clears throat> The question I had, you, you mentioned earlier that one of the reasons you chose the auditory system is you kind of know the coding. Yeah, that's right. So I wanted to ask a more general question, which is very general, and that is, do you think that if there were some equivalent in the visual system, that the debate about uh, spike coding versus rate coding versus uh, spike coding would still exist? <laughs> well, I think there are always these debates about what role timing plays um, in encoding activity in different parts of the nervous system. It's interesting, I came from um, doing research in the hippocampal system. Uh, one of the reasons I switched from the hippocampus to the auditory system was because I got interested in the meaning of encoding information about timing of synaptic inputs. And the auditory system is maybe the best example of why, why timing is important. Um, you mentioned about hearing when you hear 
Um, this, you can hear tones in the sounds of, uh, in the spike patterns that are generated by neurons. Um, that's only made possible if neurons can actually signal at particular, uh, particularly accurate at particular times during a repetitive auditory stimulus. If you don't have accuracy, you can't do that in a meaningful way. And so I wanted to take advantage of that um, temporal accuracy in the auditory pathways to actually try to understand how timing is organized, how it's processed in single neurons. I guess the question I'm asking is if you think that the auditory system is unique in its reliance on that sort of temporal processing, or is it simply that we don't either understand well enough the type of stimulus to give, or the stimuli have less of sort of a unimodal dimension in vision or audition, or not vision, um, in olfaction or whatever, and therefore we can't necessarily see the importance of the time. I think one of the things that's unique about the auditory system that really sets it apart from vision and somatosensory systems is that the nature of the stimulus is, is so dynamic that the changes in auditory stimuli um, in, in comparison to, say, a visual stimulus are so fast that auditory system really has to be geared to handle those faster signals. Um, nothing in vi vision really is processed on a time scale of you know, just a few of microseconds, but in, in auditory system, that's a prerequisite for you know, accuracy. But things happen visually at those microseconds. We just don't see them. So that's if right. we did have microsecond resolution in the visual system, think of what better baseball players we would be in. <laughs> but yeah, but able to see the ball move faster. Maybe. Well, I, I don't know actually. So, so one of the, one of the areas we're now in vision, but one of the things that's been happening recently in vision is people are paying a lot more attention to microsecunds. Okay, and asking questions about how that last little movement of the eye in a microsecund. So everyone knows in the visual system is your eyes move around unless you're following an object. Your eyes jump around from place to place in the world in something called a saccade. Well, it turns out they usually jump just short of the thing. And then there's this very small slide over to the thing, which people have always assumed has been to serve as a corrective movement. But there's some suggestion now that actually that is not just a corrective movement, that it actually involves picking up sort of more sophisticated pieces of information about the visual stimulus on a very higher spatial and temporal time scale. But it can't be microseconds because the, Probably the microseconds. in the eye don't respond on a microsecond. I mean, right there, you're just sort of limited by the nature of the... the well, that's a good re <clears throat> there's a good reason why cells can't process microsecond time differences. It's because their, their electrical properties are simply not built to handle signals that vary on that time scale. And... <laughs> There's a trade-off. You know, the more sensitive you are, the more accurate encoding you have, the less sensitive you are to, you know, the same stimuli. So there's this there's this trade-off between temporal accuracy and sensitivity. That's really f a fascinating aspect of studying auditory neurons. So one funny thing about looking at auditory neurons again compared to say visual neurons or sensory neurons, there's this phenomenon called hyperacuity, mm -hmm. which is that inside the brain you actually at least claims made, and there's some evidence, right, that inside the brain you can get more, ac you can actually get higher accuracy than you can in the peripheral receptors by using the information that's coming across all the channels. Right. Right? 
So in the auditory system where you have these primary auditory uh, neurons and then in your nucleus as well, you sort of, each one of them more or less, certainly lower frequencies, just seems to be firing blah, 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 blah. Is there a role for hyperacuity in, in the auditory system? I think that's always uh, that's an interesting question. The difficulty is it's, it's never never clear whether that's really the information that's being used by the brain. A lot of these studies involving hyperacuity allow uh, involve using, say, a neural network, whether they can, using information across a lot of different channels, you pass it into a network, can it actually extract something meaningful from, or can it achieve higher resolution from more multiple channels? But whether the brain's actually putting that information together which areas are putting that together, to me, um, it's never as clear. So capability of hyperacuity and actually demonstrating where that happens and which neurons are achieving that is another thing, I think. Well, the really question, most of the experiments you showed today, as is usually the case with a lot of auditory work, involve single tones, right? So a single frequency. Yeah. Any sense about what happens in the system that you're looking at when you're dealing with Multiple frequencies and absolutely stimuli. Exactly the same thing happens. One amazing thing about uh, the neurons that I work with, even though um, you can present a tone, uh, you're even though perhaps the salience of the signal is different depending on the nature of the sound, but you can localize noise sources, for example, with high degree of accuracy, just as well um, as well as tones. And the integration that these neurons perform, computation that they perform to achieve this, uh, to encode the cues that are necessary for performing this sound localization, um, are really independent of the stimulus. All they care about is timing. So if you have temporal coincidence, they, they signal. It doesn't matter what produced it. So how do, the input to the olive is different frequencies are encoded by different axons. Is that not correct? That's correct. Okay, so then, uh, so so that means that the frequency analysis has sort of already been done. Do all of those frequencies converge onto single MSO neurons, or does MSO neurons each one of them have a little bandwidth that they? Are? Yeah, they're they're band limited. So because of the orientation of their dendrites, uh, which are generally one plane, they receive a fairly limited range of frequencies. It's actually sort of an interesting. Um, interesting topic to talk about. There are two ways the auditory system actually encodes information about frequency, and the most common way people think about are in, in maps. Right? You have low frequencies mapped to a particular area of the brain, high frequencies systematically mapped to uh, different areas of different auditory nuclei. That you can find these maps in every auditory nucleus from brainstem to cortex. But for low-frequency information, and that's really the information that's most important for communication, or, you know, for interpreting speech patterns. These are the frequencies that are below, generally below 2 kilohertz. Um, probably the most robust encoding of frequency is actually through the temporal responses of neurons. Essentially, they signal at a particular period. They call it periodicity coding. And that's actually a more robust uh, um, way to encode frequencies at at least at these lower uh, lower frequencies. 
So uh, uh, my stereo system isn't phase accurate. So if you, you play a particular waveform into it, uh, what you get out of the speaker, uh, the phases have been messed up. Mm-hmm. And uh, you need to upgrade your stereo system. There's a very, you know, it's very rare to have a phase coherent speaker, but there is a kind. It's called the Walsh driver, and it's famously phase coherent. And people argue about whether you can hear, you can hear the difference between phase coherent music and phase messed up music. So if the, so it seems to me that phase is what's Sort of happening in timing. So if I'm, if I, if I break everything up into sine waves, then I can ask about the phases of all of them and find out this sine wave is coming from over there and this sine wave is coming from over there. Um, but if I, if I get there, the, uh, them all mixed up, well, I, how, how does the, the superior olive sort out? How does it care about phase versus frequency? Because phase is what you're calling timing. Yes. Sort of. And anyway. And then frequency is, seems sort of confounded with that. Well, that's actually a, a, an issue that's of high controversy right now. Is um, Some of the specific questions about exact... Do, are, do neurons in the medial superior olive do this... In, timing comparison between auditory pathways. Are they interested in time differences, absolute time differences, or do they are they interested in phase differences? And the interesting thing about these neurons is that they perform this coincidence detection not just for one frequency, but a fairly broad range of frequencies across their whole tuning curve. Um, so, of course, the phases are constantly changing depending on the frequency, and yet the computation is still performed accurately, you still have the same firing only at a particular um, phase combination yeah, across notice, different frequencies. Yeah, we notice these phase differences, right? So if you're tuning a guitar, one way to tune it is when you stop hearing that wobbling between the two sounds. Yeah. Um, so you probably have to distinguish between monaural effects um, versus binaural effects of phase. Yeah. So one of the one of the not conclusions, but suggestions from your work is the dendrite kind of doesn't matter in these cells. That the that the you know cell has figured out how to have the dendrite. It not matter where synaptic input is as far as its influence on the soma. But these sorts of questions about timing and phase and whatever is it pot and and yet your neurons respond in a predictable way. Okay, mm-hmm. could that actually be uh, related? Could that be something the dendrite is doing? Well, they've they've solved one problem, which is to avoid distorting the timing of synaptic inputs depending on where on the dendrite those inputs are located. The problem that's not so clear that they've solved is they still have not prevented amplitude attenuation as those events propagate from one part of the cell, from the distal dendrites to the soma, for example. Um, There's actually good reasons to have dendrites, one function of the dendrite in this in these auditory neurons is actually to make events faster. Um, you can th- sort of think of dendrites as, as you know, using a hydraulic analogy. You have 
say, a chamber holding water, if you have two pipes leading from it, the water has more places it can go. So for electrical current, when synaptic inputs are propagating along the neuron, essentially the dendrites suck out current and allow excitation to decay faster than it would if those dendrites were not present. Um, so that's it's just the morphology itself actually lends itself for the to, uh, to allow these neurons to process synaptic in input more precisely, reducing the time course of uh, excitation. Okay, so that's a general property of the dendrites. Is yeah. Is there, do you think the dendrites are doing something, you know, sort of computational with the signal? I mean, are they, are they doing a, some kind of calculation and different patterns of synaptic input, for example? Uh, we're talking about the difference between phase and, and uh, you know, we're just talking about, for example, the fact that the, the neurons seem to be insensitive to that at this level. Is that a trick that the dendrite's doing? I mean, what is it just is it just its size and there to collect a lot of stuff and it doesn't really matter what's going on out there? You're just trying to get it to the soma or what? Well, I think one one hint of, of an answer to that question is um, finding that in, in birds, the dendrites actually vary systematically in length according to the frequency that the cells are receiving. So that has really intrigued a lot of neuroscientists. Um, and the thought is that, that the length of the dendrites allow neurons to process information at a particular rate that correlates with the frequency that um, those cells are getting. So with longer dendrites, they tend to um, slow down information, or at least limit the frequency at which they can process information. Um, those are longer dendrites are found at lower frequencies. At successively higher frequencies, the dendrites are shorter. Um, and you know, the thought is that that has something to do with enabling those cells to process information faster. Okay, antennas are the dendrites resonant? Yeah, they, I mean, you can think of it as as um, morphology as, as imposing a certain optimal resonant frequency on, on the cells. Now, unfortunately, in mammals, we don't see those systematic changes in dendritic length with um, position in the uh, frequency range of the, the inputs. What about branching? But that, may be, that may be correlated to the fact that, or the reason for that may be that in mammals, the medial superior olive is restricted to relatively low frequencies. Mm -hmm. So it may be a more homogeneous population um, it doesn't have to deal with the higher frequencies, so it doesn't have to have this specialization. So by length, you mean degree of branching as well. That's a, uh, Is that a, an inclusive measure there? Yeah. Um, the shorter the dendrites, at least in birds, they're, they're more highly branched as well. Um, these are, of course, are all post hoc um, rationalizations. It's really hard to understand what the purpose of any neuron structure is. Does anyone really know why a cortical neuron has to have a particular <laughs> structure that, that it has? Um, Sometimes inputs come into different places on the dendrite, but in, in MSO, the, is there any systematic relationship between inputs and the position on the dendrite? Yeah, that's a really important question. It's actually surprising that the answer to that question is not known. Um, it requires some really careful, methodical, serial EM Reconstructions yeah. and, and not too many people well, are willing to do that. Maybe the Project will give you all the 
Yeah, so the t- technology actually is, in fact, no, increasing. Not. It could happen. Uh, it's, not like, it's not as big of a job as reconstructing the whole mouse brain just to reconstruct the MSO. Well, EM techniques have gone come a long way, and it's becoming easier and easier to get you know, serial sounds EM like, images. Sounds like you're thinking about doing it. Uh, there's certainly been talk. Um, yeah, I think that those simple connectional, I mean, really sort of coming back to the 1960s with just, just basic anatomical questions. So especially when you consider what, which we haven't, haven't really talked about at all, we talked about the role of what the, the inhibition and how that works, uh, especially with the dead rights and whether this, the normal story happens or is it different or is it doing something different? Do you want it to do anything different? Do we, yeah. Is that known about much about the, the spatial integration of inhibitory inputs? Yeah, that is, that is a topic that is uh, contentious right now, and we've certainly been part of the part of the controversy. So there was an intriguing finding about a decade now ago that um, blocking inhibition on recording from these binaural neurons in vivo, shifted the area of space those neurons seem to be tuned to. And in, in the past, that represented a sea change in thinking about how this whole circuit operates. In the past, these neurons were assumed to be very simple, just simply detected timing of excitation um, of these two inputs coming from the two ears. And now the fact that inhibition seemed to shift where in space these neurons were tuned to raise the possibility that inhibition and not excitation is actually responsible for shifting, uh, for setting a particular neuron's tuning to space. And so there's been some back and forth um, studies more recently that have questioned that. Um, I think probably the jury is still out. How do you come down on it? Uh, well, our contention is... The, really the fly in the ointment of the inhibitory hypothesis, at least inhibition as timed inhibition being the mechanism to shift uh, tuning to auditory space. The problem is that inhibition is not fast enough. Inhibition is not as fast as the excitation. So at the frequencies that auditory neurons tend to integrate information, inhibition starts to summate. So if, if the hypothesis is that it's the sort of the onset of inhibition not just for us, one phase of integration, but ongoing at very high frequencies is responsible for setting a particular neuron's sensitivity to space. It has to happen on every cycle. The auditory stimulus and it has to happen in an extremely precise fashion. What about, and that just doesn't happen. What about tonic inhibition? Is there any difference in how inhibitory inputs come onto separate dendrites versus the soma? Well, that's where this circuit is actually really intriguing. And one of the things that attracted me to work on it from the standpoint of someone interested in dendritic function is that there's a very specific anatomical um, construction of the circuit. These cells are bipolar. They have two large dendrites that emanate from each pole of the cell body. And excitation is largely confined to those two dendrites in a excitation from one ear is segregated onto one half of the cell, and excitation from the other ear is segregated on the other dendrite. And the inhibition, intriguingly enough, is centered right in between, right in the center, uh, right at the cell body. So there's a very regular pattern of innervation of, of these neurons. And so it's, it makes the system somewhat more tractable to try to understand 
these you know sometimes very complicated interactions between excitation and in, and in, inhibition. What's driving inhibition? Um, two neighboring inhibitory nuclei that are also driven by some of the same excitatory pathways that directly impinge on the medial superior olive. Is there a cortical influence? Well, there are probably cortical influences on every every auditory nucleus. Um, it's not something that's actually extensively studied. So, if there is a cortical influence, it's it's not clear what that is. There are certainly inputs from cortex in almost every um, subcortical auditory auditory nucleus. It's actually something that um, there's not as much information known about. The tuning of the phase tuning your cells must be partly adjustable by just adjusting the membrane potential because you've got two voltage-sensitive channels working against each other to set the sort of basic input conductance of the cell. So if, if inhibition shifted the cell in the hyperpolarized direction a little bit, would that change the tuning of the cell? Well, so you actually put your finger on, I think I was asked, what, what does inhibition actually do? And what I think, it, how inhibition works in this nucleus is through amplitude changes, actually changing the level of the resting potential prior to the next phase of excitation. So these neurons are exquisitely sensitive to even minute changes in the membrane potential just prior to the onset of the next cycle of integration. Uh, inhibition basically fine-tunes that process, even changing um, the voltage-gated channels that are responsible for ensuring fine timing um, accuracy in these neurons, um, their voltage sensitivity is ex at its steepest right around the resting potential. And so even we've actually found that changing the membrane potential just by a millivolt or two uh, induces extraordinary changes in the sensitivity of, of the cells. So even... Very, very subtle alterations in the membrane potential can have large consequences for the width of the tuning to, of a particular neuron to a particular location in space, and perhaps also um, but we, what we don't find is that inhibition changes where in space these neurons are tuned to. So in relation to previous findings that where inhibition, blocking inhibition did change uh, tunings of space, there's... The field is currently trying to sort through contradictory results um, using different methodologies, which is a complication, and different animals in some cases. Uh, it's not hasn't been resolved yet. How do we uh, account for all these different findings? Does, it, does the removal of inhibition just change the location, the perception of location, to all so that all neurons perceive it in the same place? Or do they all go to different places? Well, the finding was that if you block inhibition, um, it tends to move the cell's receptive field, region of space it's most sensitive to, toward the midline. So the conclusion being that it was inhibition that was responsible for shifting it over to some non-zero, zero, midline is considered zero mm -hmm. uh, on a relative scale. So that inhibition is actually responsible for setting a particular neuron's non-zero um, location in space, locations away from the midline. 
So how do you build consensus in a field like this that's got so many different preps and so many different, you know, uh, potential issues with the type of species and I mean, what are the, I the guess... Field each, like this, in this case, refers to neuroscience as a whole. Yeah. <laughs> it seems to be, in, I mean, I, I don't know, my sense is that it, there's a little bit more... Well, I think there, there are contradictory issue. results in every field, right? All of us sitting around the table have colleagues who get different results from from others and... Well, they're the, wrong. Yeah, and of course, everyone else is wrong, but... But, um, but people have agreed on a, on a prep to some degree that... No. In, in, no. I mean, well, okay, I'll stop. You can, I, I, <laughs> I mean, generally, generally, though, it's time will tell. I, at some point, enough people will be do, um, will do maybe overlapping experiments, but in slightly different ways. I think the, the thinking is ultimately consensus will emerge when there's sort of a critical body of experiments. Mm-hmm. So often your, when your, your strategy is weighted out. Well, well really two it, strategies. it has worked in some fields. Uh, two strategies, wait it out and crush your enemy. <laughs> <laughs> well, one happens faster than the other, right. I think. Uh, Which one the is problem with, <laughs> The problem with large aggressive males is what they tend to do is get onto mountains adjacent and make a lot of noise. But avoid getting down the valley. I see. Where they so that's a third can, strategy. So the third strategy is just pick your peak and make a lot of noise <laughs> and avoid the valleys at all costs. Well, you can take the example of long-term potentiation in, in hippocampus as an example of where consensus doesn't emerge, but you have maybe perhaps separate separate camps that just follow in parallel directions and never actually converge on an answer. Third way. No, my my actually, I've spent the last three weeks in a in a heated debate about exactly this subject online in the connectionist uh, mailing list. And I think if you look at the history of physics, it turns out the only way you can do this is by having common models. Mm-hmm. There's no other way to do it. So in the 15th and 16th century, physics established, Newton and others established a common set of models and principles, and then the fights all took place in that domain. Unfortunately, in neuroscience, we have not reached that point, and we're not trying to converge there, and therefore I think we just continue with the current, you know, sort of pre-paradigmatic uh, approach that we're using. I don't think it settles out without changing the technology. My, my personal opinion, which we're not here to hear, but anyway... <laughs> but you approve this message. But I do approve that message, yes. <laughs> well, there, there is this human human aspect to experimentation. Where I think... Right, that's what, that how is what we have to get rid of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's not going to happen. So, so in the meantime, what do you... It's part of what makes it fun. I mean, it, it, it does make it fun, and, you know, I think every, every one of us doesn't want to be wrong, but I, I think it's we also a question of when you, when you see contradictory, <laughs> contradictory information, how do you respond to it? Do you try to suppress that information and uh, advance your own concept, or do you go back to the lab and maybe do a different experiment, see whether there can be an explanation for why you have two different results? Actually, I proposed a number of years ago at NIH when they brought everyone in to say, how can we fix this? Um, I said, it's very simple. You require all grants submitted to be submitted by two PIs who disagree with each other. They have to come up with three experiments that they both agree will distinguish between their two opinions. And then they have to sign an agreement at the end that when the results come out, predicted one way or the other by either of them, they would have to actually stick to either a change 
a reinforcement of what they already have. That would lower the number of submissions. That would be a solution to the submissions. It's like a cage fight. No, you get, you get two people together and say, okay, you take that position that we really don't want. What do you take yeah, well, you people would game it, but I, I do think that somehow you have to force the, the goats off the mountaintops some way or other. So. But anyway. All right. Well, this has been lots of fun. Thank you, Nace. Thank, Thank you. you for joining us. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop.